After experiencing the transformative power of a regular meditation practice, it's natural to feel inspired to share this gift and guide others on their own journey of discovery through meditation. Join Buddhist teacher David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell, comedian and creator of the Netflix animated series The Midnight Gospel, for a free online event on Tuesday, May 7th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. They'll discuss the profound practices of mindfulness Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash beherenow for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell. Hi everyone, mind rolling back, and I'm with uh, uh, somebody I've never met before who is uh, who has just uh, has written a number of really Im- important books. I would say to you all, Gabor Mate, welcome to the show. Pleasure to be here. And uh, we're fellow Canadians, so that's that's our only claim to connection so far. And. Uh, I I'm want. Really, we're both old, as as the other connection. Yeah, right. <laughs> Not that old. You don't look that old. I don't know. Uh, so, Gabor, I mean, just looking through, and uh, I was sent a copy of In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts, and um, boy, that uh, that is just. Um, chock full of so much information uh and beyond to me beyond just the realm of addiction and uh i i you know in my days in in india back in the day and then throughout the years um that has been something outside of the realm of addiction the the definition of hungry ghost realm that we all inhabit you don't have to be addicted to inhabit that realm, that realm we are all inhabiting. I, I wonder if you couldn't just talk about that a little bit of what that really means and how it does affect everybody. We're not just talking about addicts. Well, so as a medical doctor, I worked in um, one of the most um, concentrated areas of drug use anywhere in North America, which is in the downtown east side of Vancouver, British Columbia. And um, Originally, I was just going to write a book about my experience of working with people in that situation. And I quickly realized that nobody out there really, that society as a whole doesn't understand addictions. But the original title of my book was going to be, I Need a Fix. (laughs) And and then somebody suggested In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts, which which is a concept I was familiar with. Uh, And as soon as I said it, it fit. Because the hungry ghosts are depicted as these creatures with uh, large, empty bellies and small, scrawny necks, and uh, you know, n- narrow gullets and small mouths, and and and, and what, no matter what they do, they 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 cannot get the sustenance. They cannot ever fill that emptiness inside. Mm. And that really, to me, is the realm of addiction. And, and as you know, in the that Buddhist cosmology that there's these different realms of, of the 
animal realm and the human realm and the god realm and the realm of the jealous titans and all that and the hell and the hell realm and i was starting to think well what does this emptiness come from this hunger comes from that we're all trying to satiate without success and we're all looking to the outside we're looking externally to ourselves to fill this gaping chasm of dissatisfaction inside ourselves mm. and this characterizes the whole of materialist society i mean that's just the kind of society that we live in it's specifically the addict because the addict is convinced that only through external sustenance can they feel the emptiness inside of themselves and they can never do it and and my contention is is that people move into the hungry ghost realm to escape the hell realm in other words the realm of emotional pain and uh, spiritual hunger and rage and terror uh, which is really the outcomes of trauma and we can't stand being with those emotions so we move to the hungry ghost realm to soothe ourselves now when you say it doesn't only apply to addicts that depends how you wish to define addiction because if you say it doesn't only apply to drug addicts that's 100 true but let me give you a definition of an addiction and see what we can come up with okay mm. so i'll define addiction as manifested in any behavior that a person finds temporary pleasure or relief in therefore craves but suffers negative consequences as a result of and still cannot give it up despite the negative consequences so we have pleasure and craving in the short term negative consequences in the long term inability to give it up now i said any behavior i didn't say drugs it could certainly apply to drugs but it doesn't have to it could also be to the internet to shopping to sex to gambling to eating to work to extreme sports to pornography even to spiritual work addiction can function in that way so by that definition you see i'm looking at far more than just uh, the 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 substance addict in, my, in fact what i'm saying is that the substance addict the the people that i dealt with that shot heroin and cocaine and crystal meth and everything else under the sun there were just one particular subset of people but we all share that same dynamic in this culture we pretty much all share that same dynamic of 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 having emotional pain having distress and trying to soothe that. Now let me ask you a question if I may and it sure. depends how depends how personally you wish to get. By that definition, would you acknowledge that at some time or another ever in your life have you ever had an addictive pattern? And I don't care what it was. I'm just asking anything at all. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It might have been with uh, marijuana for instance and uh although I would do it for a while and then nothing, you know, stop and then go back but uh definitely uh that was there uh it it could have been uh, uh addiction to uh football i was a okay. football addict f- for a time where i couldn't miss that game you know right. so definitely you know this, what and seemed did, to be silly things but not that silly and did it have negative consequences in some way um well probably less uh, you know the the big time negative consequence is not uh embodying oneself in the moment on moment exactly. and moment and moment and um, moving away from the moment to you know not experience whatever it might be including pain 
So from that point of view, absolutely. Uh, you know, from using a substance, of course, that can cause, you know, more difficulties yeah. than, than something like that. Yeah. And, and you might also say that if you're in a relationship, for example, and if you're addicted to football, that addiction might undermine a relationship, might erode, you know, might take time away from the relationship. Yeah, you know? absolutely. Either with yourself or with another person, you know. So then the next question then is, not what was wrong with the addiction, because we've just identified it, but what was right about it? What did it do for you? What did you like about it? It, it gave the, uh, the um, illusion of spaciousness around not having to face whatever I was not wanting to face in the moment. It could have been work. It could have been the relationship. It could have been uh, you know, a myriad of other things that I was not interested in, in, in addressing in that moment. There was an escape from yeah. some degree. So it was an escape from some distress that you were having. Yeah. It. It. Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. I can relax now. You know. Yeah. Just but looking, even today, just looking at a a screen with football, I have this automatic relaxing kind of feel to it, and I I look at it now. I'm a little bit more aware now than I was in in the past, and and see that very clearly. So so my point about addiction is that. The, the view that society has of addiction, that it's either a choice that somebody makes or a disease that you inherit, is not adequate. It's not, it's not right because what the addiction really is, is the attempt to solve a problem in your life. The problem of not knowing how to handle the distress or the pain or the difficulty of life. And, and uh, so my question on addiction is not why the addiction, but why the pain? And, and there we're, now we're looking at trauma. Because you see, when you were born, you were totally present to your experience. Mm. You had to be. So at some point, we all learn that it's too painful to be present to our experience. And that's what I mean by trauma. So something happens uh, to many of us, most of us in this culture, where we find the present moment unbearable. And... Uh, we have degrees of pain and to the degree to the extent that we have pain then we need to escape from it so then there's degrees of addiction but the, but the dynamic is universal and that's what i mean by the realm of hunger goes right so gabor I, I, in reading the book uh, of course i i saw some of what uh, talk about trauma and you you had uh, grown up in europe in, in your very early days, um, under the in Hungary under the Nazi uh, regime, yeah. um, what uh, that must have affected you in 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 very very um, uh, deep deep ways. Can you talk about your experience there and how how it's affected your life as it is now? Well, the experience which I've talked about number of times and it's also in, in the book and um of being born a jewish infant in hungary two months before the nazis occupied the country and so i was born at a time when my father was away in forced labor um, the war was going on and then i'm two months old and then the german army occupies budapest my my, my home city mm. and then very soon uh the persecutions and, and, and genocide that had engulfed the Jews of Eastern Europe in every other Eastern European country by then 
now was enacted in Hungary. So within a few months, the Nazis managed to exterminate half a million Hungarian Jews, including my grandparents in Auschwitz. Mm. And so I spent my whole year with a mother who was living in terror, in uncertainty, um, in physical distress, lack of food and all that. And the one who couldn't give me happy, joyous interactions, uh, who had to, at some point, separate from me for a whole month just in order to save my life because she couldn't look after me. So I had this deep sense of abandonment. Um, I've had a lifelong tendency towards depression because the brain circuits of mood and emotional self-regulation develop an interaction with the environment. And when the environment is so melancholy and so fearful, mm. fear-filled, the child absorbs that and that becomes part of the brain programming. Mm. And so I've had a lot of stuff to work through. And uh, of course, I've had my own addictive patterns as well because uh, that tremendous emptiness, that hunger, and, and that hunger really comes from contact, for lack of contact. Uh, for, for children to feel fulfilled, they need to get nutrition, but they also need emotional connection with an emotionally present, joyful adult. That's what they need. At least one. Uh, ideally, many, but at least one. Whenever that's not available, and, in, and I'm not talking about whether parents treat their kids well or whether they love their kids. I mean, there are many kids get abused, and all the patients that I had who were heavily addicted to drugs have been traumatized as children. All the women had been sexually abused, no question about it. But it doesn't take that. It just takes the absence of joyful emotional connection to create that hunger, that pain inside the infant, inside the person, which then becomes part of our self-image and our view of the world. And then we spend the rest of our lives until we get conscious, trying to fill that hole in all kinds of ways. Mm. That's what happened to me. And, um, and of course, this is multi-generational. So if I'm living my life based on that kind of um, sense of loss and fear, doesn't matter how confident or how proficient I am at my profession, that's still my basic orientation i'm going to pass that on to my children without meaning to so this is how trauma becomes multi-generational mm -hmm. so that when we talk about something like addiction or depression running in families well that can happen but it's not because it's passed on genetically but because it's passed on through the trauma imprint that we pass on from one generation to the other mm. yeah there, there's a little something in the book that uh, you quoted from Daniel Siegel. Yeah. Uh, for the infant and young child, attachment relationships are the major environmental factors that shape the development of the brain during its period of maximal, maximal growth. Attachment establishes an interpersonal relationship that helps the immature brain use the m mature functions of the parent's brain to organize its own process. I thought that was really a, a pretty interesting uh, comment. Well, you know, this is uh, one of these um, astonishingly well-kept secrets. When I say well-kept secrets, that, that quote by uh, Dr. Dan Siegel <clears throat> is simply 
a very elegant uh, summary of uh, current brain developmental research. We've known of for at least two decades that the brain develops in interaction with the environment. So which circuits develop and which don't uh, has a, have a lot to do with the emotional environment. So the, the, the emotional environment is actually one of the major, if not the major influence on the physiological development of the brain. And so that when certain conditions are lacking, like, like Dan Siegel says, the mature functions of the adult brain. But what if the adult brain is not functioning maturely? What if the adult brain is uh, traumatized? What if the adult brain is depressed? What if the adult brain is stressed? What if the adult is not functioning in a mature way? Then the infant does not have the environment in which can he or she can develop in a mature way. Hmm. And this is so important to emphasize because you see the, the, the amazing thing is that in the medical schools, they still don't teach this stuff. So we have all the evidence now that the brain develops an interaction with the environment, that the endorphins with the opiates in the brain and the dopamine in the brain, which is a incentive motivation chemical. Uh, again, the endorphins are pain relievers. They, they, they modulate pleasure and reward and joy. And they also facilitate interaction with human beings, connection, attachment. These circuits develop or don't develop in interaction with the emotional environment. So when children grow up under stress circumstances, um, like say uh, in wartime, like I did, um, or kids in Gaza do these days, or kids in Africa, or in under conditions of extreme stress, like in many parts of the United States, no wonder you have rates of childhood depression and childhood ADHD and all kinds of other childhood developmental problems of the brain burgeoning because the human brain needs a different environment than what we're giving it these days for healthy development. Mm. And we're talking about the physiology of the brain. You know, in, in the University of Washington in Seattle, they did, they did an EEG study, electrical um, electroencephalogram. These are the electric, this is the printout of the electrical activity of the brain of six months old infants whose mother was depressed and they compared them to the EEGs of infants whose mothers were not depressed. And they could tell from the infant's EEG whose mother was depressed and whose wasn't. Wow. In, other words, in other words, the mom's emotional state actually programmed the child, not because the mother's not doing her best, not because she's not loving the child, simply because when she's depressed, she can't be as responsive to the child as the child needs. And uh, in the stressed society that we have, we have more and more postpartum depression. And especially in the U.S., we have this enforced separation of young infants from their mothers because of the short-term maternity leave and the economic necessity and pressure and strain that people are under. Well, no wonder we're getting more and more kids addicted, more and more kids uh, with ADHD, more kids with, you know, 30% of American adolescents now have anxiety, 30%. Yeah, I just saw that, yeah. And the New York Times said an article about it, a big article a few weeks ago, they never mentioned the word attachment once. They never mentioned brain development once. They just don't get it. So this statement of Dan Siegel's that I quoted um, is well described in the literature. It's, it's beyond controversy, but most physicians never even hear about it. Mm. So when they look at an adult brain, they think they're looking at an, uh, sort of an inborn brain disease, say with addiction or with depression or whatever else. In fact, what they're looking at is the impact on brain development of infant and, and early childhood stress. Mm. 
Um, and, I, and I myself was diagnosed with ADHD in my 50s. Yeah. So I, I, I you know, and, and, and when you look at what ADHD is, uh, which is a tuning out and absent-mindedness, well, as an infant under the Nazis, what else could I do but tune out? Right. Who could I turn to for help? My mother? You know, she was barely making it. You know, she was doing her very, very best. Mm. She really did. Mm. Fiercely and, and courageously. Mm. But, 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 but in terms of my emotional distress, all I could do is tune out. And then the tuning out becomes programmed into your brain. And then years later, you're diagnosed with ADHD and everybody thinks you got this inherited disease. Yeah. You know, it reminds me of uh, His Holiness the Dalai Lama who says over and over to people, this, if you're talking about solutions for the future of mankind, it's about mother. It's about mother giving a baby what's needed, love and affection. My mother did that for me in spades. He didn't say it like that, but my, my mother fully did that for me. And that have, ha, has, uh, you know, contributed more than anything else to who I am. So uh, this, well, all this uh, could, neuroscience could, proves that out. I could probably ask, I, I could probably, I could pro given that you told me that you're an addiction, I could probably do a little exercise with you where you might find out that it wasn't as jolly as you might thought it was you want you sure do that. let's do whatever's going to help anybody who's listening i'm down for no i'm not disputing your mother's love for you or her dedication okay understand mm -hmm. she's not on trial here but let me ask you a few basic questions mm -hmm. um any yelling in your house when you're growing up tremendous from the father amount. okay and, and if i witnessed that scene what would i watch what would i see uh, you'd see me taking the brunt. I had a brother and a sister, and me, uh, you know, cringing from the screaming. And to this day, if anybody does that, my partner, or anybody, I react in a in a. You know, it's taken me a long time not to react the way that I used to react to this. So you're so you're in a state of terror. I was, and then that turned into anger, and and fighting yeah. back. But I'm talking about the young child. Yeah, young child, it was terror and cringing. Okay. Who would you speak to about it? No one. Okay. The Mother would try and protect a little bit, but no, no, no communication. Stay with me. You talk to nobody. Do you have children? Yep. If a two-year-old or three-year-old, they were cringing and in terror, who would you wish them to speak to? Well, me. Okay. And if you had a two or three-year-old child who was cringing in terror, but they didn't come and talk to you, how would you explain that? There is no trust. That was your childhood? Yeah. And, uh, and you didn't have the mother. I mean, you had a mother who loved you, who did her very best. I understand that. But she herself was a traumatized person. Otherwise, she wouldn't have been in that relationship. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And so was your father. Otherwise, he wouldn't have been yelling. So we're not blaming anybody here. All I'm saying is that when you talk about this unconditional uh, supportive love with your mother that is from your mother, not exactly. Yeah. No, Maybe. I and I trust me, I, I don't believe that I had unconditional love and support. I, I It was conditional based on the fact that she was a wounded person.
person herself <laughs> lost her father when she was very young, blah, blah, blah. So that, and that's the source of the emptiness mm. and the pain that you then try to modulate, moderate with the addictive behaviors. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And that's not you know, about addiction. Mm. And, and, you know, in my conversations, I speak a lot across North America and internationally and uh, on addiction and other issues. But sometimes somebody will say, well, I had a really happy childhood, but I still became addicted. And then I have the kind of conversation I just we just had. Yeah. Usually it takes two minutes to show that um, there was a lot of not that the happiness wasn't there, but that along with it there was also suffering. And we tend to repress the part that suffers. We tend not to be aware of it because it's too painful, it's too difficult to deal with. And there's nobody to help us with it as kids. So that repression is really the one of the major ways that children deal with their own suffering. And then that becomes a pattern. And then as adults, you're wondering why are we having problems? You know, what, what's, what's driving me? What, what, what's happening? Yeah. And then what happens is, is that your partner raises her voice or his voice. And uh, those mm-hmm. old brain circuits that yeah. are programmed with fear that, that, that were ingrained when you were one and a half year old or one year old or two year old, now come online again, and you're back in that same state. Mm-hmm. And the whole point of consciousness and the whole point of spiritual work and the whole point of psychological work really is to mm, become conscious so that we're no longer governed by these old uh, drives and these old patterns. Yeah, yeah, habitual patterns. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that was great, Gabor. Thanks for that. Uh, everything that helps you know in the middle of a podcast you never know uh, i'll send you my bill how's that yeah <laughs> okay uh there's one thing in the book i want to just uh read a little bit uh it's uh, addictions even as they resemble normal human yearnings are more about desire than attainment in the yeah. addicted mode the emotional charge is in the pursuit and the acquisition of the desired object, not in the possession and enjoyment of it. The greatest pleasure is in the momentary satisfaction of yearning. I found that so directly right on, but uh, flesh it out a little bit. So sure, so take somebody like me, who I've never had a substance addiction, but as I describe in the book, I've had some addictive behaviors and one of them was shopping. And I love classical music. Um, yeah, so that was fun in the book. So, but my love of classical music does not explain my addiction to shopping for classical music. So you can love you can love classical music, but be reasonable about when you go to the store, whether you ignore your family, whether you lie to your wife about how much money you're spending, whether you leave the office or even the hospital to get another CD. You know, that's addictive behavior. And it's not about having and enjoying the music, which I really enjoyed the music, but it's about having to get one more and one more and one more. And the more I got, the more I needed to have. So as I said in the book, one week I spent $8,000 without, not unintentionally, but not like I decided I'm going to have this much money to spend and I'm going to spend $8,000 on compact disc. It's that I couldn't help going back to the store. It's about the acquiring and the getting. Now, the same thing with the sex addict. Take, Take somebody who's addicted to sex they're not actually addicted to sex. 
uh, it's a very serious affliction, uh, sex addiction. Mm. Even the psychiatric profession doesn't officially recognize it as such yet. But, but nevertheless, it's a very serious affliction. It's debilitating to people. It causes tremendous suffering and unhappiness. But it's not to sex. Because if it was to sex, then all a sex addict would have to have is, is, is to find another sex addict. Then they could have all the sex they wanted for the rest of their lives. It's not about the enjoyment of the sex. It's about the hunt. It's about the thrill. It's about the chase. It's about the victory. It's about the validation that I'm wanted again by somebody else. Because if it was only about the sex, again, you wouldn't need to have multiple partners. So it's really about the, 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 the thrill and something happens in the brain. There's a certain chemical dopamine gets released in the brain when we're seeking when we're exploring, when we're looking, when we're in the hunt. Mm. And that makes us feel so alive and so present. And it's the same with the, um, the gambling addict. The gambling addict is not after money. Because even if he wins the jackpot, the jackpot, next morning he'll lose it. It's about the thrill. It's about the excitement. So what, what all addicts are looking for, and this is true whether addicted to substances or to behaviors, is they're just looking for a temporary change in the state of their brain mm. so they can feel alive and more present. We just want to be alive. And the question is, how did we lose that capacity? How, what deadened us? Where did we shut down? Where did we lose touch with ourselves? And, you know, the essence of spiritual work is reconnection with the true self. And that's also the essence of psychotherapy properly done. And so I think... That's why the two are so allied. And in the West, where we separate spiritual work from psychological work, we, all we ever, uh, the best we do is we try and fix the ego, make it a little bit more functional. But really, it's not a question of... Um, Eckhart Tolle, the spiritual teacher, says that the ego wants to want more than it wants to have. Mm. So that wanting is built into the egoic structure. So as long as we're just working on making our egos function better... That's not a bad. That's not a bad objective. I mean, some people have very poorly functioning egos, and they need to strengthen them. They need to function better, just to get along in life. But ultimately, it has to be deeper than that. It has to be that reconnection with the true self, which is really the essence of spiritual work. Mm, absolutely. Because, because because as long as we're in a wanting mode, and and um, and we're not conscious of it, and we're driven by it, we're going to be hungry ghosts. Mm. Well, it seems to me one one of the things as I uh, was reading through the book, you know, there's a lot of uh, very direct honesty from you about your own foibles, about what you've gone through, about what you still go through, and so on. And it you know, it reminded me a little bit of what attracted me in the, back in the day to Ramdas, who is also very very honest about his stuff, and it made it you know it made it easier. For, for those that we, you know, we were real young back then, it made it easier to allow for our humanity to be present and not to run from it, not to judge it, and not to be afraid of it. And um, and I have to imagine that that's got to be an important ingredient in, uh, in in terms of the work that you've done with with addicts directly or with people who aren't drug addicts, as you put it, the the, the differential. Yeah, what is your take? I mean, self-honesty. Well, I think there has to be self-honesty, but it has to be a very compassionate self-honesty. In other words, self-honesty doesn't mean self-judgment. 
Mm. It actually, it actually means looking at the ego with compassion. Uh, instead of saying you're selfish and you're narcissistic and you're bad and you're grandiose and you're this and that and the other, what's really underneath that is fear. What's underneath that is isolation. What's underneath that is pain. That's what's driving this whole project. And so that, yes, it does take self-honesty. In other words, you have to look at in yourself what is working, what is not working. You know, when the 12 steps do their moral inventory about how we, our behavior has negatively impacted other people. That's not self-flagellation. That's really just, it's an inventory. An inventory is something objective. You just look at what is there, what is actually there, what is actually the case. But, but that has to be uncompassionately, otherwise it becomes self-flagellation and self-judgment. So mm -hmm. I, teach a, I teach a method called compassionate inquiry, hmm. which is, She's asking these questions of what's really going on. So I don't mind telling you that I've had all kinds of dysfunctional behaviors, um, including behaviors very often that I wish I could redo and, 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 and do differently. But uh, like, like again, as Eckhart Tolle says, the ego is not personal. So I'm not... I'm not being pejorative towards myself when I tell you that I've lied in my life, I've been dishonest, that I've been selfish. Um, I'm just saying this is the case. And then the inquiry is, well, what was driving me? What was going on? What, what, what hadn't I understood yet? What don't I still understand? What, what separation from reality am I still experiencing? So, um, the inquiry has to be there and it has to be a forthright one, but it has to be a compassionate one. Because there's another one of my teachers, H. Alma, Muhammad Ali says, only when compassion is present will people allow themselves to see the truth. So that if you engage in this inquiry with yourself, you have to be compassionate with yourself as well. And when, it, when it's compassion there, the truth doesn't hurt. Or if it hurts, it's the kind of, it's growing pains. It's, it's not... It's not meaningless suffering, but it's the pain of growing. And uh, that compassion will allow for that and invite it. So, yes, forthrightness and honesty and, and compassion. Mm. We just, uh, I was just actually in, uh, in Maui with Ramdas and Krishnadas. We were doing a, a retreat there with Jack Cornfield as well uh, mm -hmm. and Trudy Goodman around trust in the heart. And uh, and a lot of conversation came up around that, uh, just that subject of being compassionate with oneself, uh, to allow that kind of trust that we can have, you know, intuitive trust in the deepest part of who we really are, and yeah. that that was absolutely necessary before anybody could consider. Uh, uh, any other kind of trust, any other kind of honest uh, relationship with with those around us and the world around us. So, um, yeah. Well, except that I would probably say it maybe a little bit differently. Uh, you say that trust in ourselves. Well, actually, that's not quite how it begins because, you see, we're, we're creatures of relationship and we were hurt in relationship. And one of the 
first impacts of trauma is precisely that loss of trust in the self. Yeah. And on and, and a very practical level, because if I ask you this question, as I always do with my audiences, have you ever had a time when you had a strong gut feeling about something and you ignored it and you were sorry afterwards? What would you say? Yeah, everyone would say yes to that one. Say yes, which means that at some point you actually lost trust in yourself. Right. And I'm not going to go into the reasons, but that loss of trust in the self was actually self-protective at a certain time. Because at a certain time, following your gut feelings, like your gut feelings as a two-year-old, the terror that you had would have been to run. But could you have run, escaped that situation as a two-year-old? No, of course not. All you could do, all you could do to protect yourself is to actually disconnect from that gut feeling. So precisely so that you could be, survive. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we lose the trust in ourselves because we didn't have the trust in our environment. If you had been able to go to your mother, if she had been able to receive you and hear you and hold you, and she would have validated your feelings, you wouldn't have had to get disconnected from yourself. So what I'm saying is that the loss of trust in ourselves begins with the loss of trust in our caregivers, which also means that when we work our way back towards ourselves, it usually also has to have some sense of safety with the people that we're working with. So that when you, uh, you know, I've not met Jack Cornfield personally, but I've talked to him by Skype once, and I've certainly seen many of his videos and read his books, and same with Ram Das. And you just feel that you're in the presence of people who you can trust. Yeah. And, and, and trust doesn't mean that they're going to rewrite about everything. Trust just means that their intentions are absolutely pure towards you. Yeah. And, and they won't be exploiting you. Well, then it's in that context, when you feel that safety, that's when you can regain your trust in yourself. Right. Safety. Safety, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, feeling safe. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, there, there's, uh, we just sort of touched on it before a little bit, um, in talking about spirituality and, and you, uh, I think you gave a talk and I wouldn't mind you talking a little bit about the psychology. I think it was called the psychology of spiritual seeking. I mm. think that, uh, yeah, talk a little bit about that. I'm, I, I'd like to get, uh, the, really what you're talking about here. Mm. Well, uh, in truth, I don't recall what I may have said in that. <laughs> whatever so comes, whatever comes. It's more about, because I think, you know, uh, as you said, you know, uh, I have and work with these people and been with these people, Jack and Ramdas, you know, for, for many, many, many years. And that's been certainly the uh, spiritual seeking. I, I don't, uh, at this point, spiritual path as a way to become whole and as a way to find our, our true nature, as a way to um, to transform some of the the wounded natures that we all grow up with, is uh, has been uh, extraordinarily important in my life. So, what are we talking about when we talk about the psychology of spiritual seeking? Okay, so uh, not remembering what I said whenever I said it, let me go back just to the present moment and see what comes up for me. Yeah. Uh, what comes up is the very first time I went to a spiritual event of any kind, 
It was called an enlightenment intensive. Oh. And, <laughs> and uh, you're familiar with that? Yeah. Okay, so without going into the details, this is run by a very good friend of mine, uh, who this is four decades ago now, and uh, he still runs them and he's wonderful at it. But the intention was that you should have a direct experience of whichever question you're working on. And the question I was working on is, who am I? And, and the direct experience, of course, doesn't mean an insight. It doesn't mean a thought. It means direct experience of it. And uh, this workshop went on for three days. And there's a certain method to it, which I don't need to go into here. And uh, people around me were having direct experiences. And I wasn't. <laughs> and I was getting more and more resentful. You know, why the hell can't I experience who I am? Other people are experiencing who they are. Why can't I experience, you know? <laughs> and uh, and I came away from the re retreat embittered. <laughs> um, because my belief was that I needed to have a certain experience in order to be okay. In other words, I, still, I was still coming from, from loss and need and emptiness. So sometimes the psychology of spiritual seeking is based on mm, a deficient sense of self that believes you have to have a certain experience in order to be okay. Mm. In, 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 at which point, or, or even people have these experiences, which are powerful and they're inspiring and they're joyful and magnificent or very very simple in, in a beautiful way where all these words i just use doesn't don't even apply just the simplicity is so beautiful that you don't have to call it anything but then they go back to their lives and they don't know how to integrate that experience now then they become addicted to trying to have that experience over and over and over again mm -hmm. so the psychology of spiritual seeking it, it's a delicate balance and i'm the last thing I ever do is promote myself as any kind of a spiritual teacher, you know. Uh, but from what I understand the teachers to say, that there has to be an openness and a curiosity, but that drivenness you have to watch. Mm -hmm. that, that drivenness itself gets in the way of precisely of what you're seeking. So it's like seeking without seeking. Um, uh, seeking without needing or needing without needing. There has to be a balance between, when you say, for example, how to become whole, well, of course, the spiritual teachers will not say that you have to become whole, they'll say you already are whole. You're just not aware of it. So it's the awareness of wholeness that we're looking for. Um, mm -hmm. It's tricky, it's very tricky, but to the extent that you're still seeking one particular thing that should happen to you so that you should be okay. You're still caught on the same track. Mm -hmm. And I suppose that's what I may have meant by the psychology of spiritual speak seeking, yeah. that, it, that, that it can just be another ego drive. Yeah. No, uh, absolutely. That once, once I get this, I'll be happier, I'll be friendlier, I'll be nicer, I'll be more powerful, whatever, you know, and, yeah. and believe me, for much of my life, to the extent that I've had a spiritual life, I've, I've approached it very much from that angle. 
which only feeds resentment and, and, and loss, you know? And um, I don't want to say much more than that because I don't want to pretend to have experiences that I haven't had. But, but this is what I've learned so far anyway. And, and, I, and I also know that sometimes it's surprising because about a year and a half ago or a year and two months ago, I, I learned a yoga practice from a particular teacher. And I never saw myself as a yoga person. I, I'm never going to do yoga. I got ADHD. I can't stand being still, you know. Well, lo and behold, I have a daily yoga practice now. <laughs> That's uh, great. And I wasn't looking for it. It just came along, you know. If I'd been looking for it, but well, I never looked for it. But it, life just brought it to me. Life just really brought it to me at a moment where I really was open to it. And I really felt, well, yeah, okay, whatever I'm doing, it ain't working. And this teacher came along, and, and then this teaching came along. And so now I have this particular practice, which has made a wonderful difference in my life. Mm. Yeah, so sometimes it just comes to you. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. And uh, I do like uh, the cautionary aspect of what uh, we in the West do get into because of our the competition being better than the next guy, the accomplishment, yeah. all of it uh, is, uh, well, of course, it's all perfectly elucidated in the Bhagavad Gita yeah. uh, very wonderfully. And, uh, but certainly in the West, this is a, an intrinsic issue around attainment of spiritual, spiritual attainment. And now I get what you are saying about it. Well, and, and also... This identification with the deficient self, you know, where, where, right. where, where we, we, this woundedness that, that you mentioned, well, we identify that as ourselves. Yeah. Exactly. You know, and, so, so I do, and, and then, of course, we can only look to some magic solution. Yeah. The, uh, we're getting close to the end, but I do want to just get one more little thing in here that, because it's been something on my mind. Again, it's, it's, it's a talk that you gave somewhere sometime. Um, but what's been on my mind, and I actually been working with uh, and talking to uh, in podcasts and on retreats with Sharon Salzberg. Um, it actually came from a, a good friend of mine who's a podcaster, uh, stand-up comedian named Duncan Trussell, who one day said to her in a uh, public forum at a retreat, "So, what's your practice? What do you do?" And you know, just an honest question to a teacher. And she said, I get up, I sit down, and I get real. And so we have been investigating getting real, right? Dealing with our projections, our manipulations, and so on. And, and just talking about, you know, spiritual materialism, which is what we were just talking about. Experiences and identifying with them or identifying with the wounded person. And so your talk was about the need for authenticity, which... Yeah. triggered me so maybe talk a little bit about that triggered you how triggered me no not not in a bad way triggered me to think about the getting real stuff that we had been talking about okay so you remember you, you remember what i said about gut feelings hmm. so human beings have two basic needs uh well there many needs but two fundamental ones are for attachment which is to say for relationship self-evidently without relationship the infant doesn't survive and the young child doesn't survive and throughout our whole lives we need a relationship in order to function so human beings are relational creatures and we're wired for that our brains are wired 
for attachment, for connection, for seeking proximity. That's a need that we have without which life is not even conceivable. And literally it's not conceivable because without attachment, we can't even conceive life. You know, I mean, the, 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 the act of conception itself is two people get totally attached to each other physically. So attachment and, and closeness and proximity of human beings is essential for the procreation of life and also for the propagation and the development of life. So that's one need that we have, not negotiable. The other, but we also have a need for authenticity. And by authenticity, it's very simple. Auto means the self. That means the connection with the self. Now, that same question that I asked about gut feelings and have you ever had an experience of, 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 of ignoring gut feelings and, uh, and, uh, and the mean story afterwards, Imagine, you know, let, let's project you and I back to 50,000 years ago or 30,000 years ago or 20,000 years ago or 15,000 years ago and we're hunter-gatherers out there in the wild. Just how long do we survive if we're not in touch with our gut feelings? <laughs> we don't. So that authenticity, which is just a connection with yourself on a body level, on a gut level, but it also means on the emotional level, because you have to know what you're feeling and be able to act on that, those feelings. That's essential also. The tragedy happens when, as it happens for so many of us, where in the case of yourself, as we discussed, the two-year-old has to make a choice. If I'm authentic, I have to fight or I have to escape. But, but, but then I will lose my attachment relationship without which I can't live. So then what we give up in every case is the authenticity. And then we spend the rest of our lives, if we're fortunate enough to then try to reconnect with ourselves. And if you're not fortunate enough, then you end up president of the United States. <laughs> Who, 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 who keeps looking from, from the outside, who keeps needing validation from the outside all the time. He's totally disconnected. And um, he, he, he'll gobble up the whole world in, in order to fall in, uh, fill the emptiness inside himself. You know? But so for those of us that are fortunate enough to have gleaned some measure of consciousness, then the whole task is to walk back to ourselves. And uh, recently I read a very interesting uh, Exegesis on Abraham in the Bible. Uh, you know, God, Abraham is an idol worshiper who lives in Babylon or somewhere. And God says to him, Lech lecha, go to yourself. Mm. So the initial spiritual teaching in the monotheistic tradition was God saying to Abraham, go to yourself. Mm. In other words, reconnect with your authenticity. And, and, and that's the need then. You know, and, and, and a lot of people in my experience as a physician, actually, who've been through severe afflictions, severe trials, even terminal disease, will often say that this tribulation, this trial, this illness was the best thing that ever happened to me because it led me back to myself. Mm. So that's what I mean by the need for authenticity. Right. And, 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 and it's interesting what you said about Ram Das, because from what I... If I interpret right what you said about him, this is maybe before our online conversation. You said that after his stroke, he became the person that he had always talked about. Mm -hmm. In other words, he, he found a way 
to make that affliction, which most of us would experience as nothing but a tragic blow. Yeah. He found a way to make bring that closer to himself than he might have been even before that. Yeah. I'm only surmising that. I don't know the No, no, person. absolutely. In fact, he called it fierce grace. Okay, that's what he calls fierce grace. Yeah, yeah. fierce grace. Uh, and there's a there's a, a really great movie, actually, that... Uh, I've, I've seen that. I've seen oh, you've that. seen uh, it, yeah. It's, it's, not that you mentioned it, I've seen it. Yeah, yeah, so that's... But he refers to that all the time, yeah. Yeah. Wonderfully said, Gabor. I love that, authenticity. It really fits in with what we've been talking about, just getting real. I mean, I think we're we're on the same page there. Um, I, I just want to read something before we leave. Uh, it's actually a quote, and I've never heard, I think you, you've mentioned him here in the podcast, he or she, Naguib Mahfouz. Naguib Mahfouz, he's an Egyptian novelist. Uh-huh. This is the first time I've ever heard of him, but I loved the quote that you put in the book, and I want to read it. The problem's not that the truth is harsh, but that liberation from ignorance is as painful as being born. Run after truth until you're breathless. Accept the pain involved in recreating yourself afresh. These ideas will take a a life to comprehend, a hard one interspersed with drunken moments. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it's a Fantastic. great Fantastic. Well, I'm going to give him a Nobel Prize-winning novelist, and uh, he's, he's got this wonderful trilogy called the Cairo Trilogy, and mm. that's why that's why it's this. All right, book. well, we're going to, uh, that leads me to say, we're not only will we have on, on uh, BeHereNowNetwork.com mind slash mind rolling, where you'll find show notes for this uh, podcast, you'll also find uh, Gabor's books and link to his uh, website so you can get more uh, uh, in contact with him that way, um, we will also put uh, this uh, the the Cairo trilogy is what you said. That's the novel, uh, the, the three volume novel that uh, you want to know about price. Okay, Cairo trilogy. We'll have all that up and links for everybody. Gabor, thank you so much for joining me today. I really, uh, I really appreciate it, and and certainly enlightening in many different ways. What a great pleasure to speak with you. Thank you for inviting me. All right, everybody. We'll be back next week with Mind Rolling on the Be Here Now Network. See you later.